Today's actually our final look at the book of Ruth. We've been working our way through the book of Ruth over the course of the fall, and uh, it's been a very enjoyable study uh, for me during the course of the week, hopefully for you as we've been looking at, uh, at these things together. It's been an enjoyable time as well. But we've been looking at the story of God's gracious redemption that's shown throughout the book of Ruth, and it's illustrated in a variety of ways. And this morning, we're in the very last section of the very last chapter. Today, we're in Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. And what we're going to highlight is this, this idea of restoration today, specifically that Jesus will restore your life. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. And again, I'm going to pick up at verse 13 and read right down to the end of the chapter. And this is what it says in the passage. It tells us in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today as we culminate our study of this book of Ruth. We're grateful, Lord, for the things that you've illustrated to us about your redemptive plan as we've been working our way through these passages and looking at how these portions of Scripture tie in with the greater narrative that we find throughout the entire Bible. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at this final section together today, that you'd give us your wisdom and your insight. We pray that you'd help us to understand all sorts of things as we look at this. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you'd help us specifically to recognize your hand of restoration that you accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Lord, that we have the opportunity to think about that this morning at the start of a new week. We love you, Lord, and we commit this time to your care. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you have been to my home, and uh, some of you have not been, but if you haven't been, just stop by randomly. Just, just show up. Um, but you'll notice a couple things. Uh, maybe don't do that. Just call. We'll, we'll, ha we'll, have, uh, we'll have food and coffee ready for you if, you if you give us like five minutes warning. But in our home, there are a couple unique pieces of furniture. Most of our furniture is pretty standard and normal, but there's really like two unique pieces of furniture, maybe a little bit more than that. And they aren't necessarily unique because they came from any sort of exquisite place in the world. The, the reason they're unique is it's more connected to where they came from in, in regard to my family. 
and uh, the people in our family that gave them to us. So one of those unique pieces of furniture is actually an old coal stove. And if you walk in my front door, you'll look to the left and you'll see that coal stove right there by the front door. It's actually about the size of an end table. It's not very large. It's, it's actually kind of small. And when I was a child, my grandparents had that little coal stove. They weren't using it as a coal stove. They're mainly using it as a, a piece of decoration. But they had that in their entryway. And as a child, I was fascinated by it. I just thought it was the coolest thing. I used to pretend it was a car, and I would try and like reach under it and try and fix it, and I would take the thing apart. And I used to play with it all the time, and my grandmother used to get such a kick out of that. And uh, she decided, she made a list of where she wanted her belongings to go someday when she passed away. And on that list, she gave it to my father and my uncles, and on it it said, make sure that I got the coal stove. So, she, so I, I was actually rather happy about that. And um, it was a coal stove that apparently initially belonged to my great-great-grandparents who used it in its proper function as a coal stove on their farm in Northumberland County here in Pennsylvania. And so when it was given to me, it needed to be kind of cleaned up a little bit, and I wanted to even put some paint on it because we weren't going to use it as a coal stove, more as, a, as like an end table, like a decoration. So I restored it to basically make it look like it looked when it was new. And it looks nice, and, and uh, I, it's kind of fun because when I look at it, I think of my grandparents, and I think of where it came from. Another unique per, uh, piece of furniture that we have in our home is our dining room table. And if you think about it, in many respects, it's the most important piece of furniture in our home because of the guests that we've been able to eat with and the conversations that we've been able to have around that table, and even times of prayer that have been enjoyed around that table as well. But before it was a table, it had a completely different life. It actually started out its life, now this is post-tree, so if you want to go back real far, it started as, a, as multiple trees, right? But its first use, uh, the wood for it was first used as a large wine barrel at a food manufacturing plant in western New York, where my father-in-law, George Pilgrim, worked as a food chemist. And, it, and when it wasn't needed at the plant any longer, he brought it home, and he turned it into a backyard shed for tools and lawn care items and a variety of things like that, and used it like that for a long time, probably close to a couple decades. And then he noticed that it was probably past its useful life as a shed, but a lot of the wood was still good, and because he didn't want to see the wood go to waste, and he's an expert woodworker, he decided that he was going to give it another life. And so he took it apart, plank by plank, and then took the time to build two beautiful dining room tables with the wood that he was able to salvage and restore from that large wine barrel that was now a shed. One of the tables he gave to my wife and me as a gift. The other table was given to my wife's sister and her husband. And so it's kind of neat and it's kind of fun to tell people the story of the, the history of that table before it became a table, and it's neat to see what it, was, what it was fashioned into when it was restored. Restoration projects are often fun to watch and they're often fun to participate in. Maybe you've had the opportunity to participate in a variety of things that you could look at and say, yeah, that was a real restoration project. Maybe something that you took apart at your house or something that you built or something like that. Certainly rewarding to see the outcome once something like that is finished. And as we look at the teaching of God's Word, one of the things we quickly realize is that our lives, so your life, is a restoration project of the Lord. He's looking at you with the desire to restore you. The Father looked at us in our lost and our decomposing state, 
and he offered to make us a brand new creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And a beautiful picture of the restoration that we're offered through Jesus is shown to us in the events that take place at the end of the book of Ruth that we just read together. And if you remember, in the previous chapters, we were able to see the providential hand of God as God was guiding and directing the lives of multiple people that are mentioned in these pages. Some of these people that were mentioned were Naomi and Elimelech, and we see their family mentioned. And in fact, initially, it seems like Naomi and her family were probably living a happy and content life. And uh, she and her husband, Elimelech, they had two sons. Things were going normally until a famine hit their homeland of Bethlehem. And they were forced to leave Bethlehem, and they moved to Moab, and they set up a new life there in Moab. And the Scripture tells us that in Moab, their sons grew up, their sons got married, but soon after, Elimelech and both boys passed away, much younger than traditionally expected. And so this forced Naomi and her two daughters-in-laws to make big decisions about what they were going to do with their lives. And so her daughter-in-law, Orpah, decided to to leave Naomi and the family there and return back to her family of origin because that seemed like the wise thing to do. In fact, it was actually what Naomi encouraged her to do, and Naomi encouraged Ruth to do the same thing. But Ruth decided to remain with Naomi and said, you know what, your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I'm going to stay with you, and that's it. And may God strike me dead if I ever break that kind of pledge. And so she stayed with Naomi, and they decided, okay, well, it's time for us to go back to Bethlehem. So she goes to Bethlehem, and they're obviously in a very difficult state. It's a tough era of history to be a woman, but it was also a tough situation that they were in as a family. They were basically living in poverty, and Ruth, as as essentially a peasant, starts to glean uh, grain in the fields of one of Naomi's relatives, a man named Boaz. And so that's how the early portion of this book opened up, and we saw the providential hand of God guiding and directing all sorts of things, even though in the moment, when you look at what was taking place, you could understand that Naomi felt kind of bitter about everything she was seeing. She she just admitted, she said, you know what, my life once was pleasant, but now I'm bitter. I'm just bitter at this point. I don't even see what's going on with all of this. And when we made our way to the first portion of chapter four that we looked at last week, We're seeing how the providential hand of God worked all things together where you have Boaz, who Ruth has now been gleaning in his fields. You have Boaz looking at this situation, and he agrees that he's going to redeem Naomi's land, according to the customs of the time. And he's also going to redeem uh, Ruth as his wife. He's going to marry Ruth and take her to be his wife, in the midst of this, according to the customs of ancient Israel that are explained in places like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. And the closing verses of Ruth 4 that we just read together gives us details related to their marriage and how their union played a a very important part in God's redemptive plan for this world. And after this marriage was made official, the portion of Scripture that we just read It tells us that Boaz and Ruth conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, their son's name was Obed. That's not a name that I typically hear referenced uh, in our generation, but it's actually a beautiful name when you think about its meaning. And, And we're told here that Obed was named Obed by the women of the neighborhood who looked at him as a great blessing, not only to Boaz and Ruth, who just gave birth to him, but to Naomi as well. And his name, Obed, it means serving 
or worshiping. Serving or worshiping. So he was a man whose name indicated that he would serve and worship the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken the time to look up what your name means, but when you look at the customs of ancient Israel, they would typically give a name based on on either traits that the person had, or sometimes I believe the Lord was providentially directing people to name their children certain things because there were prophetic implications. But sometimes it was also in regard to just what people hoped the child would become. And I look at this and I think, all right, a name that means someone who serves and worships the Lord. I think, boy, I love the meaning of that name. And if that could be said about me, and if that could be said about my children, I would certainly be a grateful man that we served and worshiped the Lord. Who among us wouldn't love for that to be the kind of designation that could be made of us? We're serving and worshiping the Lord joyfully, and that's what Obed's name meant. That's what the women of the neighborhood... By the way, would you trust your neighbors to name your child? I don't know how that worked, but it it seems to indicate that the women of the neighborhood picked the name. It's like, I wonder what they're going to name our child. (laughs) I don't know. I'd trust some of my neighbors to name my children, but maybe not all. Maybe not all. But Obed was his name, and uh, there's a lot of joy in this portion of Scripture as the story culminates, because you've you've watched them go from very desperate circumstances to now things really working out nicely for the entire family. And the Scripture here, this book ends with the birth of this son, and you have Obed's birth and all the circumstances surrounding it serving as a powerful testimony to the providential care of God for Ruth and Naomi. It's a very beautiful picture, very beautiful story, and it's very clear when you're reading the book of Ruth that the lives of these women were on full display before the people of Bethlehem. People were curious about them. People were watching what was going on in their lives. People were seeing the things that were taking place. They were clearly well known. Their reputations Their good reputations were known well among the people. People seemed to like them. People seemed to celebrate good things happening in their life. And their lives were just very much observed by other people. Their lives were on full display. Naomi, in particular, the Scripture reveals to us, she she in particular did not escape notice when she returned back to her homeland after being gone away in Moab for a decade. Her story of adversity, you could see that the people of the land, they widely discussed it. They looked at what was going on. They were aware of the adversity that she had dealt with. They were also aware of the fact that at this point, she was feeling really bitter about it. But now you see the joy that comes out of this circumstance. And basically, what I see happening in that context, and I know sometimes for us, when we're in the midst of difficult things, sometimes we wonder, Lord, Like, do you ever ask the Lord, like, why are you allowing me to go through this? If you're someone like me who believes that the Lord has a purpose for all things, including our trials, do you ever find yourself trying to figure out why the Lord's allowing a particular trial to to come into your life while it's still happening? Do you ever find yourself saying, like, like, Lord, what, what what will this serve? What will be the purpose of it? And one of the things that I've often noticed is that some of the trials the Lord gives us in our lives, they're not only just for us. I mean, sometimes, you know, the trial will certainly be something that could be useful in growing your faith and developing your trust in the Lord in the midst of all circumstances. But keep in mind, some of the trials that the Lord's allowed you to go through are for the benefit of other people as well. Might be for the benefit of your children. Might be for the benefit of your grandchildren. Might even sometimes be for the benefit of people you don't even know who will hear about or read about something that you endured, and it will minister to them in the midst of something they're going through. 
And it's all part of God's greater plan to minister to his children and to help someone somewhere. He doesn't waste anything. doesn't waste anything. And we don't always know this side of heaven, the purpose for the trials and difficulties that we're going through. And when you're looking at the things that Naomi's going through here and the things that Ruth was going through, but let's just say Naomi in particular, her story of adversity was widely discussed. The people in the land were well aware of it. They knew what was going on. They observed, they talked about it. Word got around that her husband and her sons, they'd all passed away, and now she's, she's at least for a season, seems like she's living in poverty and, and is really in a tough spot. But the Lord used her experiences to help people in that day. And here we are, thousands of years later, discussing her circumstances. So apparently, the Lord's also using her experiences and her trials to help people in our day, people that Naomi didn't even know. And people that Naomi, I imagine, in the moment, wasn't really even thinking about, not because she was a selfish person, because she actually was the opposite of that. She was a very giving person. But it's just hard sometimes to think that anything happening in our little lives could have that kind of great impact, or could even be potentially discussed thousands of years later, 3,000 years later. There's no way she was thinking that while she was going through those things. But here we are on the other side of the world celebrating the hand of God at work redemptively and restoratively in Naomi's life many generations after these things took place. And what ends up happening is sometimes the Lord takes our trials and He makes use of them far beyond the course of our natural life as a testimony to His goodness that helps people come to know Him in a deeper way. So I realize that no trial is easy to go through, but don't disparage it if you're a person of faith. Look for what the Lord's doing, but also trust that he's going to do far beyond what your mind's able to catch up on or perceive. He won't waste anything that you, as one of his children, is going through. He's going to use it probably even beyond your natural life. Now, the women of the community testified openly that the Lord had not left Naomi without a redeemer. That was one of the things that they were saying as, as um, you know, all these things were taking place. And when they first start saying that, I don't know if when I was reading that passage of Scripture just a moment ago, if you wondered who they, were th who they were speaking of. Because at first glance, it might be tempting to think they were speaking of Boaz when they were testifying to the fact that the Lord had not left Naomi and their family without a Redeemer. Because what have we seen up to this point in the Scripture? Boaz had just assumed the responsibilities of being the kinsman Redeemer of their family buying the land that belonged to Naomi so that Naomi would be financially provided for, and marrying Ruth so that Ruth would be cared for. So you'd look at that, and it's easy to read that portion of Scripture a little too quickly and think that when they're talking about this fact that they're celebrating the fact that, that the Lord had not left Naomi without a Redeemer, initially we would be looking at that and we'd be like, yeah, obviously it must be talking about Boaz, right? It must be talking about Boaz because Boaz just bought the land and just married Ruth. But that doesn't seem to be who they were speaking of when they talk about this Redeemer that Naomi and the family had been given and blessed with. In fact, when you look at verses 14 and 15 of Ruth 4, it says this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And it says, And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So who are they talking about as the Redeemer? Has given birth to him. Who's the Redeemer? Obed. They're talking about Obed, the baby here, right? So if you read it too quickly, you might be thinking, 
yeah, oh, how wonderful, you know, she was left with a redeemer, Boaz, you would think, the husband. It's like, no, actually what the Scripture says, it takes it a step further. They're celebrating the birth of Obed. Now, when you consider the ways in which women were cared for during the days in which the Scripture took place, during these days when Naomi and Ruth lived, you could see why the women of the community, who are the ones being quoted in that passage, why they would speak of Obed in this way. So while Boaz, Obed's dad, had assumed the role of redeemer by purchasing Naomi's land and by marrying Ruth and thereby providing for each of these women, keep in mind what we were told earlier in this story. We're told earlier in this story that he was notably older than Ruth. He was, I I don't know how much older, but notably. In his own mind, he was like, I am much older than you. That seemed to be what he's saying. I'm much older than you. And that meant that when you look at the circumstances taking place here, so even though he's redeeming the family and presently offering them help, ironically, since he's possibly advanced in years, that also means that he was also likely to pass away much sooner than these women would have. And that meant that the help that Boaz was able to offer them was really only temporary in nature. So isn't that kind of interesting to think about? After they've gone through the passing of Elimelech and then Malon and Chilion, the, the sons of, of uh, Naomi and Elimelech, and uh, now Ruth marries Boaz, and Boaz is taking care of Naomi and Ruth, and now gives birth to a son, they all have in mind the fact that Boaz is kind of advanced in years, and he's not really going to be around for a long time, most likely. But now with the birth of Obed, what's the Lord making clear? He's making clear that he's providing generational help for these women for years to come. Ongoing generational help through the birth of this child. So when Boaz died, Obed would continue his legacy of caring for Naomi and Ruth. It's ongoing care. And that's why the women of the community were looking at this, and they were celebrating. They're saying, look, the Lord has not left you without a Redeemer. You have a Redeemer right now, and you have an ongoing Redeemer, is kind of the idea that they're being told. He would assume the the redemptive responsibilities that his father had initiated. So Boaz got it going, but Obed would be the one who would continue it by providing care for Naomi and for Ruth. And amazingly, as we celebrate this ongoing generational work of redemption that we see playing out in this passage, there is more to this portion of Scripture than meets the eye. There's more to it than meets the eye, because in Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to bring it up on the screen for us, when you look at verses 21 and 22, it gives us a picture of the generations that come from this redemptive story. And look at what it tells us here. It says, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Then it tells you what happened next. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So it's giving you a little bit of a picture of what's coming next. And by the way, the David that's being spoken of here is the David from the stories of David and Goliath. It's the David who becomes king over Israel, and and it's the David who would be the, the foretaste of the ultimate kingly reign of Jesus. Now, during the course of David's life, And David's reign, the Lord promised him through the prophet Nathan, 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan uh, speaks to David and he tells him certain things. But the Lord promises David through Nathan that one with an everlasting kingdom would come from his own lineage. And this future king from David's line would lead a divinely established kingdom. And he would build a house for the name of God. And his kingdom would endure for all time. These references find their ultimate fulfillment in the one who's referred to as both the son of David and the son of God, Jesus Christ. Let me show you what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Nathan said this to David as he's speaking on behalf of God. Nathan was a prophet that ministered during David's reign. And uh, it says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God was revealing to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It was a prophecy related to Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to think about this, and I bring this up because this is the type of stuff we are all very tempted to skip when we're going through the Bible. In fact, I would think that there is no more common portion of Scripture than, uh, or kind of Scripture that we are tempted to skip than things that give us things related to generations, as it starts speaking about this generation, this generation, this generation. I remember when I was 12 years old, we were, by the way, I'm, I've often joked about this, but I really mean it. I'm glad that you've only met me as an adult. There's nobody in this room that knew me when I was 12 years old, including my wife. And if she did know me when I was 12 years old, I don't think she would have been my wife. I think she would have been like, nope, I remember him from back then and uh, not impressed. Um, but when I was 12 years old, I remember going through a pretty rebellious stretch. But at the same time, my mother was so insistent that we be in church. She never let us skip church. I tried it one time in my life. I nearly died that day, okay? And, and it wasn't so much from the violence of her threatening to take my life. It was just watching me break my mother's heart. That's the honest truth. I, like it, it tortured her, the thought of me skipping church. And so I, I tried it one time, and I got away with it one time, and I never got away with it again. And I kept, try, I kept trying it in subtle ways, even after that one time. Um, we, but I attended, sun, I attended Sunday school at our church, and this is what I would do. That season of my life, I was not interested in being in church, and I was also not interested in being in Sunday school. And so what I would do is we would get to church, and I would often try to skip out of Sunday school. So we, our, the way it was set up, we would have our worship service with everybody first, and then Sunday school was a separate hour that happened after the worship service. And so afterward, I would go back to where the adults gathered. I would grab a coffee, because they would have a coffee pot there, and I'd grab some coffee, talk to some people, and then my goal was to just keep walking out the back door. And then there was a hill and some woods behind the church, and I would go and I would hang out up there. And uh, eventually, people started figuring out what I was doing, and someone would come out of the building and be like, John get out of the woods, get your classes about to start. And I was like, how do they know? How do they know? They have to take attendance. Well, all right, so I would attempt to skip out. It didn't really work for me. And I remember one Sunday, our regular teacher became ill, and a last-minute substitute had to fill in for her. 
And she was a woman who knew the Bible really well. I, I, I was amazed at how, like, all throughout my life, I was really amazed at how well this woman knew the Bible. But obviously, she didn't have time to prepare a lesson because she found out like five minutes before that she was going to have to teach, they called it the young teens class, so the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And, um, and she had to fill in really quickly. And so she walked into our classroom with no opportunity to prepare, so she looked at us these like 12-year-old ruffians, right? And we're looking at her with our skeptical eyes. And she said, ladies, gentlemen, from what you guys know about the Bible, what do you consider the most boring part? That's how she started off the lesson. What do you consider the most boring part? And probably if I was honest at that point, I would have been like, whole thing, just to make the class laugh, right? Like, whole thing, (laughs) right? That's funny, isn't it? Guess what you're going to do with the rest of your life, John? What? I'm going to what? (laughs) Would not have believed it. And uh, and she said, what do you think is the most boring part? And I honestly don't remember what answer I gave her in that moment. But one of the girls in the class gave her an answer, and she said, most boring part? And she goes, the begats. She said, the begats. That's the most boring part. And I was like, what is the begats? I had heard of the commandments, and I had heard of the Beatitudes, but I'm like, what are the begats? It's like, I don't even know what she's talking about. I had no idea what begats were. I quickly found out that what she was referring to was the portions of Scripture that had genealogies in them, because in some of the classic translations, like the King James, those lists uh, of names say things like, you know, this person begat so-and-so, and that person begat this person, and that person begat this person. So the way my fellow student in the class... Uh, described it. She said, the begats. That's the most boring part of the scriptures, the begats. And so our teacher said this. Imagine this. So glad I had wise guy teachers back in the day. They formed my personality. Um, But she said, great. Let's open up our Bibles to the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1. That's what our lesson's going to be about today. What you think is the most boring part of the entire Bible. And then she proceeded to teach us why portions of Scripture like this actually matter. And I remember at the time thinking, how did she do that from memory? How did she do that? Like, just how did she know where to go? I had never even heard of a begat. How did she know where to go? And how did she know how this all ties in? And so she took us to a portion of Scripture like this, Matthew chapter 1. This is how the book of Matthew opens up. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it tells us this. Now tell me, what is the point of this, all right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. And I'm going to read the whole thing, by the way. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and you're like, wait, what is the point of this? And it's like, wait, all this time I've read Matthew, I've never noticed Boaz and Ruth and Obed, they're all referenced what? In the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what this genealogy is actually demonstrating, if you think about it, 
Each of these, they're not just names. These are actual people with life stories. And the genealogy demonstrates the fulfillment of God's long-standing promise to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. It's basically proof to you and to me that when God makes a promise, He keeps it. And He works it out generationally through one life after another life after another life. He made this promise to Adam and Eve. You can see this back in Genesis 3, that God promised that Jesus was coming right after Adam and Eve messed up. He's like, you know what? You messed up. You done bad, kids. But I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to send someone who's going to fix it. The promise was elaborated further on when Abraham was told about the, the generations that would come from him. And then Abraham's great-grandson Judah was told that the, the scepter would never leave Judah, meaning that there'd be a king who comes from Judah. And that's what Judah was promised. The promise was given to David as well. I read from, from 2 Samuel 7 just a moment ago. And as we look at the earthly genealogy of Jesus, what we're doing is we're tracing the longstanding promise of God being fulfilled in the lives of people like Abraham and Judah and David. But we also, again, read the names of Boaz and Ruth and Obed right there in the opening to Matthew's gospel. And they're listed among Christ's earthly ancestors, and I think that's ridiculously cool to be able to look at that and see that. And so while it's tempting, coming back to the book of Ruth now, while it's tempting to read the book of Ruth like it's a story about her, or like some people read it, some people read it like it's a story about her great-grandson David. In fact, for many generations, people would look at that and they would say, oh yeah, this, is, this tells us how we got David. It's like, no, it tells you how the story continued through David, but there's more to the story than just what happened in David's life. It's not a story about Ruth. It's not a story about David. It's a story that's revealing an important link in the redemptive chain that ultimately brings us to the divine Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So when Obed was born, the women of Bethlehem, they said of him that the Lord had not left Naomi's family without a Redeemer, that his name would be great in Israel, that he would restore her life and, they, and that he would nourish her in her old age. And Naomi obviously took great joy in this blessing. We're even told that she nursed Obed, offering nourishment from her own body in the midst of his infancy. But again, don't miss the greater story that we're being shown here because it's a really cool thing. It's true. Now think about how this all ties into the grand narrative of what God's trying to show us when we're reading the Bible. It's true when you're reading the book of Ruth that a child was born in Bethlehem who would redeem his people. It's a book that's pointing you to that, right? You have this child, Obed. He's born in Bethlehem. He'd redeem his people. His name would be great. He'd restore life to the dead and nourish those who felt worn out. But Obed wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. What he was was a sneak peek at what was to come. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, Born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets foretold, this baby born in Bethlehem would fulfill these promises with eternal ramifications. Jesus came to this earth to rescue us. Jesus came to this earth to redeem us. He came to fulfill the prophecies and pictures that foretold His arrival. This whole thing is a picture leading us ultimately to Christ. It's giving us a picture of the redemption that was going to happen through Jesus one day, that ultimate baby who would be born in Bethlehem to rescue and redeem His people. Jesus came to inaugurate His eternal kingdom and offer us a permanent part in that kingdom 
if we'll trust in him. And here's the thing, you and I live in an interesting age, but every age has been interesting, but in the rest of the world, you're watching during our generation right now, you can look around and you can see something. And what you'll see is, as you observe the rest of the world, those in leadership and even those not in leadership, you'll watch a group of people trying to build their own kingdom. And you'll watch a group of people trying to redeem their own lives if they even think they need redemption. But as we watch that, let's not forget what Scripture is trying to reveal to us. It's trying to reveal that Jesus is who He said He is, and that He's come to do what He's promised to do on our behalf. Receive His offer to redeem you. If you're somebody that's been kind of floating around on the edges, knowing about Jesus, but never really initiating a relationship with Him personally, or responding to the initiation He's making, receive His offer to redeem you. Trust in Him. Follow Him as your eternal King. The whole narrative of Scripture has been trying to tell humanity to do that. From the start of human history till now, it's pleading with us and begging with us to, to receive that rescue through Jesus Christ. Most people ignore that plea. Most people ignore that offer. Most people you know in your life will ignore that offer. But you don't need to be one who ignores that offer. You can receive the gift of redemption. You can receive the gift of salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ. And when you look at the words that Christ said during the course of his earthly ministry, he was trying to tell us, listen, I'm building a kingdom, and I want you to be part of it. Here's how. And as we finish up our study of the book of Ruth and even finish up our time together here this morning, I just want to finish by giving us three portions of Scripture of the words of Jesus related to that kingdom. It says this, Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what, what was he saying in that context? He's saying, listen, every one of us has had a physical birth. But if you don't also have a spiritual birth, you won't see the kingdom of God because it's a spiritual kingdom. Some people think, oh, look, I, I was physically born, it's, it, and that makes God my father. And what Jesus was saying is, no, he's your creator, but he truly becomes your father the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, the son, and you're welcomed into the family of God forever. And Jesus says, look, you got to have a second birth. You have to have a birth that's different from the first one. The first one was physical, the second one spiritual. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. But why would he even say that? He's not saying that to thumb his nose at humanity. He's saying that because he's, he's telling us what? I want you to be part of the kingdom. Here's how you get in. Be born again. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. We are born spiritually. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said it this way. He says, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are a lot of people culturally that would tell you, oh, yeah, I'm I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Culturally speaking, they'd be like, yeah, absolutely. You know, Christmas time's coming up. We'll celebrate his birth, all that. And really, if you dig down deep, you're just talking to a whole bunch of people that know about him and maybe even acknowledge that he exists, but they have no eternal relationship with him. They don't trust in him. And how do you know? Well, you look at the fruit of their life. How do you know? If I tell you I follow Jesus, if I tell you I genuinely believe in Jesus, how do you know I'm not lying? 
what if I've just been this big faker? I've been your pastor here for 14 and a half years. Well, I'm just a big faker. It tells you I follow Jesus, but I don't really believe it. How do you know I actually believe it? You're going to see it in the way I treat my wife. You're going to see it in the way I treat my children. You're going to see it in the way I carry myself, the character that I display, the way I live my life when no one is watching, and the way I live my life when everyone is watching. You're going to see it in how my life is lived. You're going to know my faith is real by what comes out of my life. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, why would any of us desire to do the will of God the Father? Well, it's because we've been born again. We've been given a new birth and a new life, and we're just living the new life. i got to tell you, if you've never experienced a new life, the new life is good. And I hope you experience it because it's good. And I'm telling you, if you're floating around on the fringes, don't wait another day. Make today the day that you receive the gift of salvation that Christ's offering you, because I'm telling you, he'll change it from within. Your perspective will completely change, and you'll be part of something eternal, whereas prior, you've only been part of something temporary. And then one more thing I'll show us as we finish up. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, scariest word in the Bible, and one of the best words in the Bible. When people see the word repent, they get all freaked out. And basically it means, look, you were going in this direction, go in this one now. Repent of, you, you know, you were walking in unbelief, now believe. You're walking in rebellion, now obey. You're walking in ignorance, now understand. Repent, have a complete turn, go in a new direction completely. And believe in the gospel, believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that a redeemer has come. And he looks at you and he says, you were destitute, you're gleaning on the edges of the field because you were in poverty. And the Lord says, I saw your poverty. I saw your weakness. I saw that you felt like you were nothing but dead. And guess what? You're right. You were. You were, you were lost. You were weak. You were in spiritual poverty. And he said, I, I'm ultimately trying to make you part of my kingdom. I'm inviting you to become part of it. And if we trust in Jesus Christ, we'll be part of that kingdom. If you believe in the gospel, you believe in Jesus, who he is, what he came to do for us, You'll be saved. You'll be rescued if you truly trust in him, and he'll change your life completely. And Jesus invites us to be part of that kingdom. And here's the thing. If you want to understand the Bible, whether we're reading a genealogy, whether we're reading the book of Ruth, whether we're looking at anything else in Scripture, always be asking yourself the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? Because the whole thing's been given to us so that we would understand that God is seeking to rescue and redeem lost people and that we would understand that Jesus is the solution. So I'm grateful for Naomi's life, and I'm grateful for Ruth's life, and I'm grateful for the, the stretch of people that we get to see and the way God was working things out. And I know that they didn't have any full concept of what the Lord was doing in and through them, but isn't it amazing to be able to see that they were a link in his redemptive plan to bring Jesus to you and me? I love that, and I'm so grateful that we had the chance to look at that together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this, to be able to read through a portion of Scripture like the book of Ruth that sometimes people mistakenly just look at and say, 
yeah, its, it's ultimate goal is just to give us a little, little slice of history, and here ends its purpose. And Lord, when we really look at it, when we really think about what you've revealed to us here, we realize that what you're doing is you're using this book to point us to your son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. So Lord, thank you so much for what you've revealed to us during our study of this book. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to think about these things. And Lord, I thank you for each person that's gathered together here with us today. And Lord, I don't know who's floating around on the fringes and, and who fully and truly knows you, but you know the answer to that. And I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be a, a, a single one of us who goes a moment longer without welcoming your son, Jesus Christ, to be their rescuer and redeemer, to be their savior. Lord, I'm so grateful for the fact that, that you snatched my life out of rebellion, that I was ignorant of the things that mattered to you and really not interested in learning, and all of a sudden you changed my perspective and you helped me to value the things that you value. And you completely changed my life. And Lord, I'm so grateful for that, and I'm thankful for the fact that you've given me hope for the future, the fact that you've made me part of an everlasting kingdom through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you've given me a mouth to be able to talk about these things, and you've given me the privilege to be able to stand in this pulpit and preach about these things. So Lord, I pray that those words that we've spoken today, these things as we've just elaborated on them from your word, would not fall upon deaf ears, but would reach hearts and that many would come to know you as a result. Again, Lord, we're so grateful for who you are. Help us to trust you, help us to walk with you, help us to glorify your name, and help us to live as hopeful people who are looking forward to the next unfolding part of your redemptive plan. We're grateful, Lord, that we have the chance to be a part of your family through your son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for these reminders from your word today. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.